All right. I want to talk about three of the early deists, deists from the 1600s, the 17th century, and some of the responses that were given to them. I'm going to start with Edward Herbert, the Baron of Sherbury. Uh, I will remind you that this is the older brother of the English poet George Herbert, whom some of you may have read. Herbert died in 1648. He put forward several works in which he advanced his particular version of universal religion, as he would call it. Uh, De Veritate, or On Truth, published in 1624, widely circulated. But then, toward the end of his life, uh, De Religione Laici, a layman's religion, that's the one that is pretty much completely plagiarized by Blount. So what you've been reading from Blount is, in essence, the first English translation without acknowledgement of Herbert's work. And posthumously, De Religione Gentilium, a gentleman's religion, there's a common theme to all of these books. True religion must be universally known and it must be available equally to everyone. If it isn't, that it is not true religion. Uh, I've incorporated where I can find them portraits of the authors, and so you'll see this rather flattering portrait of Edward Herbert. Looks like a rather dashing young man in the picture. I have another one. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, what are the main themes of Religio Laici? First of all, he frames the work as a dilemma. One must either become a complete master of all scholarship and all religions in all languages, or else settle for what is common to all religions, or at any rate, to all good religions. It's easy to see that he's going to push us in the latter direction. Few or none can do the former. Even highly trained scholars from different religions and different sects disagree with one another. He makes particularly good use of specific Roman Catholic doctrines because He's attempting to set his English readers on his own side, knowing that most of them will have a prejudice against the Roman Catholic Church. So you'll find him perpetually referring to what those priests are trying to make him believe. Since we can't be comprehensive scholars, we ought to be content with simple piety, a universal religion that does not depend on the doctrines of any particular religion. Herbert uses this phrase, particular religion, as a term of contempt, and he applies it to Christianity specifically, trying to say, this is not universal, this is not general, this is not available to everyone. Here's a rather less flattering portrait of Edward Herbert. It doesn't look like quite the dashing young man there, it looks like he's perhaps put on a few extra pounds. Here are his five points of universal religion. Number one, there is one supreme God. This, he says, we find everyone to agree to, however much they may disagree. Number two, this God is chiefly to be worshipped. Number three, the means of that worship are piety and virtue. We should acknowledge his lordship and supremacy and we should act in ways that are right. Those are the things that are required, or at least the main things required, in the worship of the Supreme God. Number four, we must repent of our sins. 
and if we do, God will pardon them. And number five, there are rewards for good men, and there are punishments for bad men in a future state. It's a very cheery picture of what it takes to be reconciled and right with God. It's fairly simple. Uh, he declares himself to be so pleased with it, he thinks of himself as like a second Archimedes, exclaiming, Eureka, I have found it. I've found the simple truth that is at the bottom of all good religions. Uh, Herbert's critics were not gentle with his position. They, in fact, tended to contest most of his claims as far as the idea that it was universally recognized. So if you read Thomas Halliburton, for example, and I think we have uh, a link to some of Halliburton's work. If we don't, I can put it up. Halliburton uh, does not think that the generality of mankind has ever held that there is one supreme God, at least not in those historical epics that we can go study in detail. Um, piety and virtue were not the things that people thought primarily were the appropriate means of the worship of God. Instead, sacrifices and even some debased ceremonies were part of what they thought was the worship due to God. Um, repentance alone, without sacrifice, without expiation, has not been the view generally held by human beings. And whether there are rewards and punishments in a future state depends on whether we have a natural knowledge without special revelation, without something like scripture, to tell us that there is a future state at all. And uh, even some of the deists deviated from Herbert on this and said, no, actually, we have no guarantee that we have any life but this one. So on most of his points, the idea that this was the natural and universal religion is not sustained by an examination of actual history. Leslie mentions this, but Halliburton goes into a great deal of it. Sorry, Leland mentions this, and Halliburton goes into a great deal of detail about it. Our focus in this course is on special divine action, and for our purposes, that largely means miracles and prophecy. So let's see what Herbert, and following him all too closely, Blount, had to say about miracles. A miracle that's wrought in attestation of a teaching that is not in itself good and honest should not be attributed to God. You find this in Blount, pages 29 and 30. Uh, other authors would sometimes bring in specific scripture to try to support this. There's a passage, I believe, in Deuteronomy 13 that says even if someone works a miracle, if he does it and says, come away and follow other gods, you should not listen to him. So the content of the teaching that's supposed to be authenticated by the miracle is a part of what we have to look at in order to determine whether this should be attributed to God. Most miracle claims can be traced back to just one witness, and there's an obvious problem with that. If there's just one witness, think about Leslie's criteria. That's not public anymore. That becomes just something due to one person, and we might reasonably raise questions about the credibility of a report that's brought to us only by one person. When there are multiple witnesses, they often stood to gain by telling their tale, and that weakens their credibility. People who have something to gain by saying something may have motives other than truthfulness, and therefore we must be proportionally less sure of what they are telling us. 
it's not safe, Blount says expressly, to trust any single or weak testimony absolutely in matters of great consequence. Notice the blending together here of questions of evidence and questions of significance. In matters of great consequence, it's not safe to trust weak testimony. When we get to reading Butler's Analogy of Religion, we will find that Butler directly contradicts this kind of claim. Butler says, when we have matters of great importance, it's of the greatest importance to us to pay attention even to slight considerations that tip the scales just a bit, one direction rather than the other. The more important the issue is, the more carefully we look at small pieces of evidence to see where the balance lies, even if it's only slightly in favor of one rather than the other, that's the way we should go. If you had two roads to take and you thought that there was a 55% chance of your being able to live if you went down the right-hand road, but only a 45% chance if you went down the left-hand road, you should rationally take the right-hand road. You shouldn't say, well, there's not much evidence, so I'll flip a coin or, or do something random or even perverse. So questions of weak testimony that does incline the scales a little bit in one direction, though it does not give us something close to 100%, are handled very differently by different authors. Finally, he says things might seem to be miraculous that were really done by natural means, and that is, of course, a significant question. Remember that when someone says that a miracle has occurred, there are two questions that we can ask before we accept it. Number one, has the event really occurred at all? And number two, supposing that it has, must it be miraculous? Both of those questions need to be answered in the affirmative if we're going to credit this as a miracle. Here, Herbert raises the worry that we might just be fooled not knowing what nature alone can do. Think of what a good stage magician does when he makes us think that he can't possibly have a rabbit inside of his hat, and then out comes a rabbit. Stage magicians excel at misleading, misdirecting us, and so similarly might other people. How about prophecy? Um, they've got a few things to say on this. Number one, all these page references, by the way, are to the blount as you have it. What is commonly alleged for prophecy is often too vague and obscure to be credited. If I say that you will cross water this next week, and I don't say anything more, I haven't nailed down a specific day, I haven't told you what it means for you to cross water, do I mean on a boat, or driving across a mud puddle, or a river, I'm probably on pretty safe ground as long as I keep it sufficiently vague. That, says Herbert and Blount following him, is not a good ground for belief in anything. Bold conjectures, when they are not specific as to the time, place, and manner of the events, are apt to be verified at some time or other, in some place or other. For that reason, they shouldn't count as true prophecies. So, for example, if I tell you that within the next week there will be an earthquake in the United States, I'm on very safe ground because somewhere or other, it's a big country and there are quakes going on constantly, 
uh, I could probably even narrow it down to California and still be safe saying that, not because I have some supernatural view of the future, but because I haven't told you how severe the earthquake is, I haven't told you exactly where it will be and exactly when it will occur. And the vagueness allows for multiple things to count as a fulfillment of my prophecy. That is not a true prophecy, that's just a conjecture. And uh, even bolder conjectures make it lucky. So it is not a good idea for us to take the mere verification of someone's prediction as a ground for attributing supernatural foresight or divine favor to this person. Claims of visions and ecstatic trances are common, both in non-Christian religions and in the lives of the Roman Catholic saints, the uh, ecclesiastical history. But they're seldom credited, that is, by the Englishman to whom Herbert and Blount are writing. And if you're not going to credit those, then you shouldn't credit any others that have no better justification. We will see this move being made by David Hume in his essay of Miracles in part two, particularly the fourth of the objections that he raises in part two of that essay. So keep your eyes open for David Hume's use of this same method of reasoning and arguing. Blount also makes a great sound and noise and fury out of the difficulty of inquiry into religious matters. I was bound, if I took the first of my two options, he says, to study with an impartial mind not only all the several religions, but likewise the controversies amongst them in divers ages, languages, and countries, and for this purpose not only to acquire the tongues used heretofore, or at this present time throughout the universe, but also to read the several authors that have written upon these arguments, and together with them to confer those learned men, who though they had not published anything in writing, may yet be no less able to edify me than the former. In other words, I have to devote a lifetime's study to inquiry into these matters. And frankly, life is short and I don't have that kind of time. So I can't do it. I can't go through that kind of process. What shall I do if I can't do that? I'll go with what is common to all good religions, my five points. That's simpler. Men can agree upon those. That will bring about peace through agreement. We'll dispense with religious controversy. I want to take some time here to talk about Edward Stillingfleet's Letter to a Deist. His main work, um, Origines Sacre, A Sacred Origins, was published in 1662, but in the third and subsequent editions of this, at least, uh, starting in 1677, he put in an extra piece called A Letter to a Deist. Put it in at the end of the second volume in the printing that I've linked for you. It's often said that he is here responding to Spinoza, but actually I'm going to place him before the discussion of Spinoza because I think a good case can be made that he has at least one eye on Herbert. You'll remember that Herbert uh, had a, a work published a decade and a half after his death, and I think that Stillingfleet may be keeping that in mind. See whether you see points of resemblance as we look at some of the things Stillingfleet urges. He has a letter to a deist in which he 
asks whether we must quit all pretenses to certainty, because we cannot, it may be, answer all the subtleties of the skeptics. I am by no means satisfied with your manner of proceeding, desiring all particular difficulties to be answered before we consider the main evidences of the Christian faith. Notice what Stillingfleet is doing. He's saying it's not reasonable to demand that all skeptical questions be answered before we look at the main lines of evidence. That's a distraction. You're pulling us off of the main point. The main evidences should be looked at first. He continues, the only reasonable way of proceeding in this matter is to consider first whether there be sufficient motives, by motives there he means reasons, to persuade you to embrace the Christian faith, and then to weigh the difficulties and to compare them with the reasons and arguments for believing. And if those do not appear great enough to overthrow the force of the other, you may rest satisfied in the Christian faith, although you cannot answer every difficulty that may be raised against the books wherein our religion is contained. I pray, sir, consider with yourself. Do you not think it possible for any man to have faith enough to save him unless he can solve all the difficulties in chronology that are in the Bible, unless he can give an account of every particular law and custom among the Jews, unless he can make out all the prophetic schemes and can tell what the number of the beast in the apocalypse means? If a man may believe and be saved without these things, to what purpose are they objected for the overthrow of the Christian faith? Do you think that a man hath not reason enough to believe there is extended matter in the world unless he can solve all the difficulties that arise from the extension or divisibility of matter, or that he hath a soul unless he can make it clear how an immaterial and material substance can be so united as our soul and body are, or that the sun shines unless he can demonstrate whether the sun or the earth moves, or that we have any certainty of things unless he can assign the undoubted criterion of truth and falsehood in all things. These things I mention on purpose to let you see that the most certain things have difficulties about them which no one thinks it necessary for him to answer in order to his assurance of the truth of the things, but as long as the evidence for them is much more considerable than the objections against them, we may safely acquiesce in our assent to them and leave the unfolding of these difficulties to the disputers of this world or the knowledge of another. Stillingfleet's response is typical British, even Anglican, response to difficulties. It is a response that says, we don't need certainty about all of the details. We need adequate evidence about the main points. Now, in this letter, he goes on to address various objections that have been raised by the person to whom he is writing. So it's not that he doesn't intend to address objections. He certainly does intend to address objections. What he's saying here instead is that getting all of them satisfied is not essential for rational belief. That distinction is one that we're going to see coming up over and over as we move through the deists and their antagonists historically. So keep that in mind that Stillingfleet said this early, you will find if you move later in time that we reach a point where uh, even the Oxford logician Richard Waitley and his Elements of Logic comes back to this point. He doesn't name Stillingfleet, but he does address what he calls the fallacy of objections, which is the fallacy of saying that unless you can answer every objection, you cannot legitimately have certainty 
regarding anything, any degree of certainty, even the kind of certainty that makes it reasonable for you to accept it. Okay, we're ready to come to Spinoza. Baruch Spinoza was a Dutch philosopher, Jewish by birth, but when he was 23 years old, he was expelled from the synagogue in Amsterdam. He was declared to be cherem, uh, equivalent to excommunication from a Christian church. He was a forerunner of modern biblical criticism. He denied the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, or the Old Testament in Christian parlance. He was an early figure in what Jonathan Israel calls radical enlightenment, secular, individualistic, uh, profoundly democratic, intending enlightenment to be for everyone, egalitarian. According to this criterion, people like Voltaire do not count as radical enlightenment figures. Voltaire is certainly a figure of the enlightenment, but he didn't want enlightenment for his servants. He didn't want them, for example, disabused of their Christian beliefs. If they were, they might steal the spoons. So he would send the servants out of the room before he and his friends would begin talking about their enlightened views on religion. Spinoza was more radical than that, and so for that reason he is sometimes thought of as the forerunner of the radical enlightenment, the first person, perhaps, to have written extensively in that vein. Um, he's variously classified as a pantheist or an atheist. There are arguments for the one and the other view. Uh, certainly, many of his contemporaries took him to be an atheist, and I think you'll be able to see why as we get into his arguments. Spinoza's work that deals with miracles is his Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, chapter 6. It's self-contained, it's not very long. I'm going to give you the main points of this here. Belief in miracles, he says right at the outset, arises from ignorance of natural causes. What makes people call something a miracle is that they do not see the natural causes that bring it about. And here he makes a couple of key points. For our purposes, we need to look at three of them. First, nature cannot be contravened. She preserves a fixed and immutable order. This he takes to be an axiom. You can see where trouble is going to come in for traditional views of miracle, according to this. God's existence in nature cannot be known from miracles. So the things that you call miracles, you more credulous peasants, um, cannot be used to teach us anything whatsoever about God, neither his existence nor his nature. Third, references to God's decrees and to God's will mean simply nature's order, following necessarily from her eternal laws. So as you read in scripture that God has decreed something or willed something, all that that means is that this is what is going to happen in nature, because God's decrees are the laws of nature, neither more nor less. Here's his argument for that first point. He says, laws of nature are necessary truths. Remember that premise. We will come back to that premise a little bit later. Number two, nothing is necessarily true except by divine decree. So it follows from that that the laws of nature, these universal laws, are divine decrees. They are what God wills. But a miracle, in the sense of something that contravenes the laws of nature, would contravene the divine decree. 
and that would mean that God was acting against his own nature. But this is absurd. God never acts against his own nature. Therefore, miracles in this sense, the sense stipulated in premise 4, can never happen. So he presents us with a dilemma. Either agree with him or adopt what he calls the only alternative, which is to assert that God has created nature so weak and has ordained for her laws so barren that he is repeatedly compelled to come afresh to her aid if he wishes that she should be preserved and that things should happen as he desires. A conclusion, in my opinion, very far removed from reason. Keep this in mind when we come to Peter Annett, who is one of the deists we'll be reading later in the course. Annett also uses the argument that if there were miracles, they would show that God had a lack of knowledge or a lack of power in creating the universe because he couldn't get it right the first time, but had to come along and tinker with it on subsequent occasions. So keep that in mind as we get further along in the course. Again, Peter Annett is the person that you'll want to be thinking of. So if you're taking some notes now, that would be a name to jot down. Further, Spinoza says, as nothing happens in nature which does not follow from her laws, notice the assumption there, nothing happens that doesn't follow from those laws. And as her laws embrace everything conceived by the divine intellect, and as nature preserved a fixed and immutable order, it most clearly follows that miracles are only intelligible as in relation to human opinions, and merely mean events of which the natural cause cannot be explained by a reference to any ordinary occurrence either by us or, at any rate, by the writer and narrator of the miracle. This is what we call an epistemic definition. A miracle is being defined not in terms of its intrinsic nature, but in terms of the ignorance of the people believing it to be a miracle or writing about it as a miracle. Miracles are arise from ignorance, ignorance of the true causes of things. Well, how about point two, that we can learn nothing about God's existence or nature from miracles? A miracle, whether it has natural causes or not, is a result which cannot be explained by its cause. That is, a phenomenon which surpasses human understanding. But, Spinoza argues, and this is all from the Tractatus, chapter 6, from such a phenomenon, and certainly from a result surpassing our understanding, we can gain no knowledge. Wherefore, from a miracle, or a phenomenon which we cannot understand, we gain no knowledge of God's essence, or existence, or indeed anything about God or nature. We learn nothing from mere cases where our ignorance is on display. And since miracles have been defined in terms of our ignorance of their causes, they are, by definition, things from which we can learn nothing. It is only phenomena that we clearly and distinctly understand which heighten our knowledge of God and, our most, and most clearly indicate his will and decrees. Plainly, they are but triflers who, when they cannot explain a thing, run back to the will of God. This is truly a ridiculous way of expressing ignorance. If you have read much of the literature of the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, you will recognize this as a version of the God of the Gaps charge. The idea that 
God exists as a catch-all explanation for things that we can't explain by means that would be more scientific. So that form of argument, not the phrase God of the gaps, but that method of arguing that the only alternative is to say you just invoke God when you can't explain it in any other way, is very old and goes back to Spinoza. So even modern arguments have roots back in the earlier writers that we are looking at now. How about point three, that scripture never really tells us that there are miracles that are worked without natural causes? Well, he gives some examples of some passages of scripture. In 1 Samuel 9, God tells Samuel that he's going to send Saul to him. Send, mind you. That sounds like a deliberate and direct act that God's going to do. But in fact, Saul is wandering along looking for some asses that he has lost. He can't find them and he decides to go ask Samuel if he knows where they are. It's completely natural. His coming to Samuel does not look like God has put a divine hand in his back and shoved him towards Samuel. It's just something that happens. Here, Spinoza argues, the language of scripture attributes something to God but then immediately shows us that it was not any kind of intervention in the course of nature, it was a wholly natural event. Again, Genesis 9, God tells Noah that he will set a rainbow in the sky, but says Spinoza, this action of God's is but another way of expressing the refraction and reflection which the rays of the sun are subjected to in drops of water. That's not something above nature, that just is the work of nature. That's all. Exodus chapter 10, the Egyptians experience a plague of locusts, but note, Spinoza says, it comes by normal natural means. There's a strong east wind that blows for a day and a night. And then when they leave, there's a strong west wind that blows them away. Finally, he goes to the New Testament as well. He's an equal opportunity offender of Jews and Christians alike. In John 9, Jesus is healing a blind man, but he uses physical means. He makes some mud and then anoints the man's eyes with mud and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So even there, what's really happening is that some natural means are being used. It only appears, because we are ignorant of the causes, that there are supernatural forces intervening in nature, contravening the laws of nature. Now, there are many passages for which there is not even any plausible suggestion that there are natural intermediate means used. But Spinoza feels that if he has given you a few examples of this, he can just brush the rest aside with a sweep of his hand and say, well, when they don't mention it, that's just a failure to mention the sorts of things that they do mention in other places. We may safely assume that those are always present. Here's his summary on the point. Scripture does not explain, says Spinoza, things by their secondary causes, but only narrates them in the order and the style which has most power to move men, and especially uneducated men, to devotion. And therefore, it speaks inaccurately of God and of events, seeing that its object is not to convince the reason, but to attract and lay hold of the imagination. You can perhaps understand why both devout Jews and devout Christians would not find this explanation uh, sufficient for the language of Scripture and would find, indeed, that it was, from their perspective, almost blasphemous to say that that's what's going on. Basically, he's saying, Scripture's fooling 
the uneducated for their own good. It begins to sound, when described that way, like Plato's noble lie. The Irish physicist Robert Boyle, who was a major figure in the history of science in the 17th century, wrote a letter to a friend which uh, is as yet not published. It's in the Royal Society archives. And I'm going to quote some pieces from it because this letter, we don't have the name of the friend, but we have something written on it indicating that it dealt with Spinoza, and I think it probably did. Uh, this letter shows how an Englishman of the late 17th century reacted to this critique that Spinoza was putting forward. Says Boyle, I think we dim-sighted men presume too much of our own abilities if we dare, as some do, magisterially determine that the great God, the most free and omniscient author of things, can have no ends to which it may be congruous that some of the arbitrary laws he has established in that little portion of his workmanship that we men inhabit should, now and then, though very rarely, be controlled or receded from. And here's the definition that he gives us in the same letter of a miracle. By the word miracles that you will often meet with in the following discourse, I understand those strange and wonderful operations, productions, and phenomena that surpass the settled or common course of nature in some such manner as that upon the whole matter they cannot justly be attributed either to nature left to herself or to the skill, power, frauds, mistakes, or credulity of men. Think about how this definition differs from the definition that Spinoza is giving. Spinoza says, you want to know what a miracle is? It's an event where you or the person writing about it or the person who thinks it's a miracle don't know the causes. Boyle is saying a miracle is something that cannot justly be attributed either to nature left to itself or to skill, power, fraud, mistake, or credulity. Credulity would probably be the closest thing to what Spinoza was saying. And Boyle is saying, no, it's something that can't be attributed on the one hand to nature or on the other to the cunning and artifice or ignorance of man. So Boyle takes it in a more robust sense. In fact, if you know your New Testament, you may remember the beginning of the third chapter of the Gospel of John when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no man can do the works that you do unless God is with him. That is pretty close to Boyle's definition. If someone does these kinds of works, they surpass the power of nature, the cunning of man, and can't be written off as matters of our own ignorance or mistakes or credulity. That is why they have evidential value which, of course, Spinoza doesn't give them, because his own definition rules that out. Here are some key points in Boyle's critique of Spinoza. First, notice that he says these are arbitrary laws. They depend on God's will. Contrast this with Spinoza's view that they are necessary. They're not necessary. God could have made the force of gravity greater or less than, in fact, it is. So they are arbitrary. They depend on God's decision, God's will. They are not necessitated by God's intellect. 
Second, to know that there is never a reason to override the general laws of nature, we should need to know that God could not have reasons for doing so. That's an overreaching. That's an overstep on our part. That knowledge is beyond our grasp. We are not in a position to say that God could not have had reasons. In another one of his books, The Christian Virtuoso, published very close to his death, uh, Boyle talks about the evidence of testimony, and since we've already seen, Blount takes a rather uh, deflationary view of testimony, it would be useful for us to have something as a point of contrast. His manifest says, Boyle, that the most rational men scruple not to believe upon competent testimony many things whose truth did in no way appear to them by consideration of the nature of the things themselves. Nay, though what is thus believed upon testimony be so strange, and setting aside that testimony would seem so irrational, that antecedently to that testimony, the things at last admitted as truths were actually rejected as errors or judged altogether unfit to be believed. So before we had the testimony, we would have thought these things not credible. But the testimony makes the difference. Keep this passage from the Christian Virtuoso. I've given you the pages in the 1690 edition. It's pages 70 and 71. Keep this passage in mind. When we get to the final module of the course in the final week and we are reading David Hume and reading George Campbell, Campbell's critique of Hume is going to place much weight on exactly this point, that there are many things that we have no reason to think are true until the testimony comes and would, in fact, be inclined to say, well, no, that's not true. And then one piece of testimony, even from someone we have never met before, may rationally make us believe the thing. Campbell does not cite Boyle, but there is a matching in their treatment of testimony that might be of interest to you. If you want to think now about paper topics, read ahead a little bit, that might be a point that you would want to focus on or at least to make some inquiry about. That wraps us up for the lecture.